Memory is a strange thing. Sometimes I can't remember what I did last week or yesterday, but then there are some days that just stick in your mind for years. As a journalist focused on international news, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi is one of those. Khashoggi was a Saudi loyalist who turned into a critic. He was also a permanent resident of the United States, and after years of opposing the Saudi government, he was brutally murdered, the details of which may be disturbing to listeners. Khashoggi was attacked, and he died in a most gruesome way, his body being cut up and handed part by part to other Saudi officials inside the building. He was strangled and then dismembered two years ago at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, Turkey. He was immediately attacked by this gang of killers that were sent specifically to actually liquidate him. It wasn't an accidental death. The consul general on tape is allegedly screaming, please do not do it here, you are getting me in trouble. Khashoggi's body was never found. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. At the time, many countries threatened sanctions on Saudi Arabia or canceled arms deals. France is insisting on an open investigation and says it would look at sanctions. Germany has halted future arms sales with the kingdom. And Switzerland has told media outlet AFP it will suspend deliveries of spare weapons parts. Soon after the killing, members of the Crown Prince's hand-picked security team were arrested for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. They stood trial, and some were sentenced to the death penalty. On the surface, it seemed like Saudi's justice system was following through. And then last month, nearly two years after the murder, a Saudi court significantly shortened all of their sentences. Two of them are now only serving seven years in jail. On an international level, most countries' relationships with Riyadh and its crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, have returned to status quo. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman appears to have weathered the fallout. He's still very much in power, and world leaders continue to do business with him. So, after weeks of news coverage in October 2018 and international outcry, Khashoggi's death ultimately changed little in Saudi Arabia and little in the world order. So why did it all fade away? To answer that question we turn to two men who've spent a lot of time thinking and writing about the man at the center of Khashoggi's killing, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS. I'm Justin Sheck. I'm an investigative reporter at The Wall Street Journal and the co-author with Bradley Hope of Blood and Oil. We worked on it <laughs> round the clock for a, for a good year. Their book, Blood and Oil, is about MBS's rise to global power with rare access to a country that can be pretty closed off to most of the world. As the anniversary of Khashoggi's death approached, our colleagues at AJ Impact, which is Al Jazeera's business brand, spoke with Bradley, and we followed up a few days later with Justin. One thing we were curious about right off the bat is how MBS managed to emerge from this whole crisis unscathed after he flat out accepted responsibility for the killing. Others have blamed him too. 
The CIA has concluded that the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, better known simply by his initials MBS, was ultimately responsible for the killing of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. The Senate believes Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is responsible for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. MBS's security team carried out the murder. So does that make MBS himself a criminal? Here's Bradley's take. MBS has himself said publicly that he takes responsibility for it. Um, I think most people don't understand what that means. But what that means is that essentially he's admitting that I, I told my team to take care of the Jamal Khashoggi situation. What we'll never know, probably, and even the CIA doesn't seem to know the answer, is what was the exact orders? Was it, please kill Jamal Shoji, that guy is a traitor? Or did he say, take care of this guy, and then the team sort of went above and beyond? It, I think we'll just truly never know the answer to that, because whatever, whenever that was spoken, it may not have been spoken on a phone line or in a room with more than one person. The murkiness of this situation leaves it pretty open to interpretation. So why don't we start with the people in Saudi Arabia? MBS became the de facto leader of Saudi Arabia when he was just 31 years old. I think Saudi people, especially the youth who are so feel so empowered by him and who feel like they give him the mandate, he has made a difference on their lives. They don't want to turn back the clock, so they have a lot riding on him. That's part of it. When MBS first became the crown prince, he framed himself as a reformer. He had cinemas built and changed the law so women could drive. He cracked down on royals, who he said were wasting money and resources. Bradley says most young people in Saudi Arabia welcome those changes and are willing to overlook MBS's human rights violations in the interest of reforms. And then there's the political culture of Saudi Arabia. I think you find this often in the Gulf countries that the leaders are lionized to some extent and there's really never any personal criticism. And even in the countries where there is criticism, it's usually criticism of a policy, like they kind of abstract it from the personality. So their government is telling them this was a horrible mistake, we're holding people to account, you know, and, and they, they believe MBS is not personally responsible. So within Saudi Arabia, MBS has mostly been able to escape criticism. But what about the global community, the United Nations and all the individual countries like France, Finland, and the United Kingdom who had vowed to avenge Khashoggi? Justin says he's not surprised that they failed to back up their words with action. I mean, to put it into context, you know, it's obviously a horrible, unacceptable, terrible event. The thing is, if you zoom out a little bit, long before Khashoggi and long after, Saudi Arabia under Mohammed bin Salman has been bombing Yemen and heavily bombing Yemen. After five years of war, the Saudi-UAE coalition has not defeated the Houthis and aid agencies say the human cost of the fighting has been enormous. It's resulted in the world's biggest humanitarian crisis and that has been similarly accepted. Marking 2,000 days of the Saudi-UAE-led war in Yemen, thousands of Yemenis took to the streets in the capital, Sana'a, to condemn what they described as a campaign of death and destruction by Riyadh and Abu Dhabi. It's been accepted by Saudi allies like the U.S. and much of Europe. As much as there are objections, nobody's done anything substantive to stop that. So if you look at it in context, the killing of a longtime 
courtier in the royal court who became a dissident is like just, it's one more horrible thing for the world to look past. The other thing is, you know, just looking at it at a very pragmatic level, if the U.S. was going to, you know, cut off relations with every ally who killed a critic, you know, geopolitics would look very different. The way Justin and Bradley describe it, it sounds a lot like inertia at play. MBS has arguably racked up a long list of condemnable behavior. You essentially have a crown prince who's kidnapped the Lebanese prime minister, who's blockaded Qatar, who rounded up all the other richest people in the kingdom, threw them into the Ritz-Carlton under house arrest, has, you know, essentially been the driving force behind this illegal war in, in Yemen, the Saudi coalition. But Western countries especially the U.S., have been allied with Saudi Arabia for so long on security cooperation and oil production and weapons sales that changing the relationship seems a long way off. And then there's also the fact that MBS has woven himself into the fabric of international finance. A lot of our initial stories were looking at MBS and money. In fact, that's where Bradley says their reporting on him began. He became so immersed in, in international business and finance, it gave us so many entryways. Take Aramco, for example. We are Aramco, and because of you, we lead the way, responsibly producing energy for the world. Aramco is Saudi Arabia's state oil company. It was the world's most profitable business last year, and in December, under MBS's leadership, it went public. Historically, Aramco was almost its own domain. They left somebody in charge of it. It was never a royal that was the kind of the chairman of the board, so to speak. It was really kept separate. And the idea was, this is such a crucial institution. We don't want anybody interfering with it. And then one of the first things MBS did was take over Aramco, put himself in charge, and really take control of all the arms of the economic machinery of the state and start having them all go in the same direction that he envisioned. MBS's control over Aramco not only gives him a hold over this massive company, it also gives him an extra hold over the country, one that previous princes didn't have. Justin says this is by design. MBS is just 35 years old, but he started building this business strategy and network decades ago. When Mohammed bin Salman was a teenager, what he saw was that his father was very powerful politically. His father was not yet king then. He was the governor of, of Riyadh province for 48 years. It's a, a very powerful position. But he had two weaknesses. The biggest weakness was that between him and the throne, he had two older brothers. And also, he didn't have much money, which meant that his wealth came from whoever, whichever one of his brothers was king. All the money he had was from monthly or annual handouts from a brother. And Muhammad realized this as a teenager. And he realized that this is a problem because if the king didn't like his father or if his father died, he was out of money. As he got older, he started building businesses. You know, he had a sanitation business and real estate. His family played a role in kind of in, in this deal with Airbus to buy a bunch of planes for the Saudi state airline. So he got all these diverse sources of income. It made you know, we report in the book, you know, King Salman told people he was happy and proud that his son was able to get this money because he realized that he couldn't just get by in political alliances and and respect. He needed money as well. And so the money helped pave the way for his father to gain more power and, and for him to gain more power. 
In their reporting, Justin and Bradley found that MBS made a calculated decision to build his financial empire and political security this way. So when his older uncles died and the throne was passed along to his father, King Salman, both father and son had it made. They had the monarchy, they had a broad array of financial assets locally and abroad, and Justin says that combination protects MBS from blowback today. As you get toward the upper echelons of the royal family, there's an increasingly blurred line between what's his investment and what's a national investment. Mohammed bin Salman has ordered you know, tens of billions of dollars in Saudi state money to be invested in many international companies. On the open market, they bought stock and oil companies. Saudi Arabia reportedly buying $1 billion worth of European oil companies. They've invested tens of billions of dollars in tech. Saudi Arabia's crown prince Mohammed bin Salman said he expects about $100 billion to be invested in India over the next two years. They become the biggest venture capital investor in Silicon Valley. They put $3.5 billion into Uber. They put $45 billion into the SoftBank fund that invested in all sorts of companies, including WeWork. They're also buying Lucid Electric Car Company, and it's also just pumped half a billion dollars in Live Nation, a company that puts on events and concerts and stuff. So his image aside, it's made him someone who very powerful and important business people in the U.S. and Europe want to have access to and want to have a good relationship with because there's always the prospect of him you know, investing some huge amount of money in one of their projects. So it certainly helped open doors for him and have relationships with with powerful executives in the West. What he's saying is, if MBS has some degree of control over big businesses in the West, then because of the way capitalist societies work, he's also got a bit of control over Western governments, or at least his relationships with them. Here's Bradley again. So he's like, you know, the cornerstone investor in the $100 billion vision fund. He develops all these relationships with everybody from the CEO of Six Flags to the CEO of Boston Dynamics that makes those crazy robotic looking dogs. <laughs> so I think it's really important because when it came to the blowback after the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, it was harder to disentangle him than it could have been for a different kind of prince. A different kind of prince could have been sort of jettisoned and it wouldn't have had these lasting reverberations on the country. It's happened in the history of Saudi Arabia. Other princes have been sort of moved aside, toppled by their brothers. But with MBS, the idea of doing that, not only did he kind of prevent all of his rivals from, from getting anywhere by detaining them and sort of taking away their authorities, but he also became so entwined in the global financial system that he be, it's, it's almost too difficult to get rid of him at this point. So if MBS is untouchable within Saudi Arabia itself, and plays such a big role in how the global markets function, what can be done? We asked Justin if there was a way the international community could pressure MBS to stop committing human rights violations and face the consequences for past ones. And he said, His priority, his main goal, is to make sure that the al-Saud continue as the rulers of Saudi Arabia for as long as possible, and then to make sure that he is the next one to sit on the throne. And so he has shown a commitment to doing whatever he thinks is necessary to make that happen. If it means social liberalization and economic liberalization within the kingdom, he will do that. If it means cracking down on dissent, he'll do that, sometimes in brutal ways. If it means you know, locking up people in the Ritz and taking their money away, he'll, he'll do that. If he thinks the best, thing, best way to maintain power is to keep bombing Yemen, he'll keep bombing Yemen. If there's some incentive to not do that, then he won't. 
Justin says even if something was done, if pressure was put on him, it might not work. He doesn't respond that well to pressure because if publicly he seemed to respond to pressure by giving people what they want, it makes him look weak. So to that end, if countries like the U.S. and European countries want him to behave in a different way, recent history shows that they're not going to get it by publicly trying to force him to do something. And they're also not going to be able to convince King Salman to take away his power. Turkey tried that in the aftermath of Khashoggi, and it didn't work. So it seems like, you know, if you're dealing with a guy who is, you know, near the top of an absolute monarchy, giving him incentives to, be, to behave differently seems more effective than trying to pressure him into behaving differently. And that's The Take. If you want to learn more about MBS and his rise to power, check out Justin Sheck and Bradley Hope's book, Blood and Oil. You can also read more from Bradley's interview with AJ Impact on their website. We'll link to the articles from our Twitter and Instagram pages. We're at AJ The Take. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilbey, with help from Amy Walters, Oni Wohacha, Dina Kispe, Nagin Oliai, Alexandra Locke, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Natalia Aldana is the engagement producer. Alex Roldan is the sound designer. Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. And Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. Special thanks to Patty Sapka for sharing her interview with Bradley Hope. We'll be back.